Hi, Emily. Hey, Robin. How are you? I'm good. I want to start off by apologizing <laughs> for our absence. Uh, yes, yes, we had a little bit of um, just life getting in the way, as it does. Yeah, but here we are again. Yeah, I would also uh, like to apologize um, because we're going to be talking about disability studies today, which is, I'm not apologizing for talking about it, I'm right. apologizing because we are both new to this area and we are learning and I'm excited to talk about because it is an area that I want to learn more about, I know Emily wants to learn more about. I think as both as scholars to this, if you will, this needs to be talked about more. So we are, as always, we are just talking about a little bit of it. You have any other additional thoughts, please let us know. And there is yeah. a large amount of reading that we still have to do. But yeah. So this is just going to be kind of, um, like we were introduced to this, like you said, pretty recently, this area of critical scholarship. So we're going to be um, introducing our like introductory knowledge of this field to you. But we, yeah, if you have any suggestions for articles or books or other um, literatures, we would love if you would email those to us. Okay. So this overview is by Anna Malo, and um, this is something we actually read in class, which I thought was a really helpful historiography <laughs> of how disability studies has been approached. And even, I would say, even the name disability studies is, mm -hmm. is kind of a point of contention about you know, ability and disability. So yeah. she writes, if disability studies remains less familiar than other forms of critical scholarship, this disparity should not be construed as evidence that disabled people are more oppressed than other members of socially minoritized groups, which is really important because even though we've been talking about other uh, privileged and non-privileged groups, it's not a competition. Um, in fact, there's a lot of... Um, Overlay and actually the mm -hmm. ability rights movement um, happened alongside the civil rights movement and there's mutual benefits and mutual collaboration. And I'd also say um, like queer theory shares the stage oh, a yes. little bit with disability studies as well to look at how um, like historically uh, like queer populations have been pathologized using like some of the discourses that we're going to discuss in disability studies. So there's a lot of overlap between like interlocking logics of oppression and I think disability studies does a good job of, of parsing out some of these histories and also some of these like social. She also writes that, um, and I've heard this people say this before, is that we will all be disabled if we live long enough. So that kind of says that ability and bodies change over time and we sort of turn into different um, stages of abilities and it doesn't always have to go in one direction. There's temporary disabilities, obviously living long enough that you might have a mobility change or a mental change or what have you or chronic illness. Yeah, and I think this is um, like one thing that Malo points out that like our unfamiliarity with disability studies mm -hmm. is also corresponds to the um, like obscuring and the hiding and the erasure of um, like dis disabled populations like within representation you know that this is something that is not um, discussed in critical scholarship or also approached um, that disabled people are located in nursing homes in special schools and so that there's this this erasure that's going on in society as well and when we talk about when we talk about the medical model the medical model kind of facilitated this hiding from the public as far as um, uh, people with disabilities are stuck in the home because 
thing, it's not easy for them. There's no way to work a job or be out or people were institutionalized a lot or sent away. Um, and not that those, I mean, there are still very helpful clinics and institutions that do help that, but in this sense, sometimes it's more of a hiding away because we don't want to deal with it. We don't want to look at it. And um, although there's a difference between visual and uh, not visual impairment, but things that we can see on the body that are written on the body and then things that are more quote unquote hidden. But there's a real discomfort with society when we see disability because it's a confrontation with the other and it's mm-hmm. a very direct confrontation of the other because when you think about um, kind of body, like inhabiting a body, mm-hmm. it is a body that is quote unquote not normal, which is part, which is the, the medical model that it defines disability as a deficiency afflicting an unfortunate individual. When cures or effective remedies cannot be found, the medical model authorizes social re- reactions of pity, fear, avoidance, and moral judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the medical model not only advocates hiding away, but there's also the assumption that everybody is looking for a cure for their disability, that that is, the, that is what they aim towards, um, that if they're visually impaired, they want to have full sight. If they are deaf, that that is a deficiency and that, you know, um, they always want to change that. Yeah. And so this medical model, I guess, has given way to the social model of disability, um, which is very interesting, which instead of treating disability as a deficiency or an aberration in some type of natural model body, um, that we look at society more holistically at um, like architecture, um, attitudes, politics, and economic structures that create the conditions where certain populations um, are marginalized and become disabled. So in this way, um, disability is reconceptualized as not starting from some like innate or natural place, but it's um, a reaction of like social and political and economic forces conspiring to to create marginalization um, of certain populations. Yeah, and this is where you see. Um, I mean, we still have some ways to go, but some legal. Um, the social model brought about some legal changes about discrimination, um, accessible bathrooms, doorways. It, which takes people from the pub, uh, from the private to the public, um, and opens up those doors. And the social model is more about not looking at ability, disability as uh, like a binary, and one is the other, and one is the privileged. Uh, is that this is how the body is, and we need to create a system where nobody is uh, excluded from that. Mm-hmm. And I think. I'm not as versed in it, but things like universal design um, in building, and I know there's also some ways to criticize that, but that's where um, that kind of comes into it. Yeah, and I think this emphasizes um, moving away from like impairment, like we were talking about the medical model, to disability or being differently abled, and so there's um, like a full range of abilities and of and of bodies. Um, and of ways of interacting with the world that the social model emphasizes um, equity and access. Mm-hmm. And I, and this also goes, uh, if we move into sort of pop culture and mass culture, that you see a lot of um, overcoming narratives, how people with disabilities are brave. They, even just doing normal things like going to school or being out by themselves um, and how brave they are. And we also kind of idolize what um, she calls super crips. We're we're calling something. Okay. 
That was um, actually our commercial break. Yeah. Um, that was our Casper Mattress sponsorship. Yeah. So, um, yeah, back to our conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we often kind of look at um, what Anna, what she calls super crips and do things like win Olympic medals or climb a mountain where kind of to be valued, they have to go above and beyond, whereas people with disabilities just, it's not enough to participate in the everyday life. Mm-hmm. And I think that yeah. comes in, actually that comes in when we talk about The Bachelor, um, because Certainly. there's a lot of language of overcoming um, in that. I'm, I mean hot take the bachelor is really annoying me this week but yeah we'll, we'll get to that we'll in a get to that yeah and i think this is something you mentioned earlier that um the disability rights movement specifically adopted some strategies um from the black civil rights movement um and like anti-racist movements during the 60s 60s um to to work in coalition with these questions um like questions like access and like equity to public spaces mm-hmm. private spaces so um, there is that legacy of, of I guess, like, yeah, inter-coalition work there, um, which I think provides some, like, productive convergences, but then also um, can be problematic in other ways. Mm-hmm. So just I'm just going to jump ahead a little bit um, sure. and talk about things as, and when people think ability, we think about the iconography of the, wheelchair that that is kind of the international symbol for disabilities but there is a whole range if you think about kind of the whole range, way in which we live in our bodies so there is what people I think and again I don't know um, called um, invisible disabilities which is also kind of a tricky name things like learning disabilities um, mental yeah I think like what you're getting to is is like a critical kind of like opening up of the field of like disability studies it's moving beyond um, looking at like physical or visible different abilities to looking at how uh, like asexuality is pathologized for example or um, looking at different um, I don't want to say not dis- like again like language is really important here yeah. to say mental disabilities um, I'm saying this in like a broader way that people are differently mentally abled with um, like ADHD for example and yeah. that there's a full range of physical and mental faculties that people have and disability studies helps us open up and examine the ways in which um, typical model types are mm-hmm. privileged whether that is um, the heterosexual white perfectly able body or whether that's I think you know the capitalist market preferring certain forms of, of learning and focus in the workplace and so I think disability studies also gets to um like the productive value of the body in society today, which is, I think, a really important critique. And as with everything, language has language is important because disability, again, is not even in the spirit of the social model. I think there's different words that are used. Some people use um, crip theory, which um, crip coming from the derogatory term cripple, um, and that has been reclaimed, but I I know that some people within and scholars don't really care for that term, and it's it's kind of evolving. So there's different things I kind of think about. I don't know, and that's something that we need to learn about what language is going to be used. And I think we're still struggling with that in everyday life. And um, you know, we we're at a university, and there's a lot of um, things that intersect with being at a university and people's how people's ability 
affects their their success here and is it something that should be understood should be taken to consideration that should have a legal accommodation and who sets what is a reasonable accommodation you know what i mean mm-hmm. what is reasonable and kind of all these questions um questions about if things like depression and anxiety are diff- are um Consider disability, and we talk. We kind of use the term neurotypical and a neurotypical right. um, to kind of, um, I guess, categorize those differently. So it's something that's still evolving. And I think the only, um, like, in the course of like reading, like, up on disability studies, um, specifically like in connection with um, like sexuality and romance, yeah. for example. Oh yeah, you brought so yeah, you brought yeah. this good good transition. You yeah. brought this really good article to my attention. Yeah, this was it's really fascinating, and I guess we'll link it. It's called um, this is from Emily M. Baldies at Pennsylvania State University, and the article is called "Disabled Sexuality Incorporated Incorporated the Compulsions of Popular Romance." Um, and so she's talking about the way in which um, people with disabilities are portrayed in romance novels. Um, like specifically, I guess like paperback genre. But this article really it brings up a lot of questions about um, about desire, romance, and the like the subjectivity of disabled subjects. Um, and like when talk when we're talking about The Bachelor, I think it's interesting to consider disabled sexuality um, in heterosexual like hegemony. She says that quote disabled sexuality needs to be contained because it is perceived as threatening the heterosexual hegemony. So looking at shows like The Bachelor that actively reproduce heterosexual hegemony and coming in to look at how do they also reproduce discourses of um, of ableness as well, I think it is is a really productive point of contention. Well, yeah, and that's something I shouldn't have, um, in the kind of this movement, this social movement, that people with disabilities have not been considered sexual beings because they either think that they can't or that no one would have sex with them or they lack a desire. So that's something that has been um, really misunderstood and kind of we're still kind of navigating Mm -hmm. that. And I think that we don't have a lot of representativeness. I still think we're still in the like heroic representation. Yeah. there's a show on Netflix called Atypical, which I don't know why I watched the whole thing, but <laughs> it's about a boy with um, Asperger's syndrome and kind of navigating relationships and love, and it's a comedy. I don't want to say if I, if it's a... I'm not one to say if it's a very good representation. I know I've read some things where people do feel that it is a good representation, but I think what's important about it is that he does pursue relationships mm-hmm. with women or girls. He's in high school. Yeah. So this article um, blew my mind because the author is looking at some texts where the one of the characters in the heterosexual couple that is part of the formula of romance has what is considered a mental disability. Yeah. So one of them, I cannot even believe this, it's called Simple Jess. It's a... It, this was an amazing... Like, it was, it was a crazy article. Like, yeah. If you do have time, please read it. And Jess is a simple man, which kind of implies that he is kind of um, developmentally... Um, has the developmental abilities of a child. I didn't. I haven't read the book, which I really. I'm very curious now. And um, he's kind of lives with his mother, and he meets this woman, and the love and sexuality of the woman um, cures him. Not yeah. maybe literally, but kind of this idea that he becomes this fully realized man because 
he has sex and he has and kind of the marker of being fully capable is being in a heterosexual relationship yeah i think that this article like brings up this point of there's this discourse of like compulsory able-bodiedness which is paired with um like adrian rich's theory of compulsory heterosexuality and so like you were saying that um that to be engaged in this kind of like normative heterosexual relationship to be a heterosexual being is um, indicative of your of your individuality of your subjectivity of your humanity and how these discourses like really work in tandem that we can't you know discuss the bachelor as heterosexual patriarchy without mm-hmm. talking about how our logics of compulsory able-bodiedness also reproduce within the show who is allowed to be desired and what are the quali- like what are the physical qualifications and mental qualifications um, of a mate that Colton is picking yeah um, just two things I want to say that I realized I should have said before is that um, people with disabilities um, were often sterilized in the past um, as part of that movement because this idea that if it's hereditary or not, you know, they can't reproduce because they're not making their incomplete bodies, their incomplete genetics that we don't want to pass on. And I say we, like in quotes, not Emily and I. No. Um, and yeah. something else I wanted to say, we are very, something about ability um, othering is about um, ugliness. And we haven't really talked about ugliness. And there's this just, I'm very fascinated by the idea of what is ugly to the public and what we try to hide. And there's a book that I haven't read yet that is on my list called The Ugly Laws. And in the turn of the century, there were laws made about people who weren't allowed to be in public because they were upsetting people. And that had a lot to, you know, that was a lot with people with disabilities, homeless people. So I think this idea, it goes along with why we hide people with disabilities. And I wanted to bring it back because another book in this article was talking about a woman who, um, it's called A Prince for Jenny. Oh, yeah. This one was very interesting. A prince meets kind of this quote-unquote simple girl. And I think the literal quote was, she had Down syndrome, but it did not affect her looks. Exactly. She was still beautiful. And I just, like, threw the thing across the room. It's insane. And it was written fairly recently. So we talk about that, that, and also going now as we transition to talking about the episode about there's the commodity of beauty is still, um, you know, and and the commodification of bodies and what's a healthy body and what's an attractive body really plays in Mm -hmm. to this episode. Um, Yeah, so. Yeah, this was a... Like, I feel like I blacked out (laughs) watching this episode, not just because, like, I had a cold, which was the reason for our lateness, but this was a very, it was, it was a frustrating episode to watch. What I think, so a couple things is, one, I was reading this other article about reality television, and it really made a good point that the show isn't about finding love, it's about women failing at love. Right, because it's how many people fail and how they fail and what makes them fail and what means they're not complete. And there's a lot of crying over, like, what's whenever they leave, I hate when they say, like, what's wrong with me or I didn't do enough. Yeah. Um, And it just kind of plays into this idea of kind of completeness and Mm -hmm. from the norm. And so really, a lot of the show was... um, Onyeka and Nicole's conflict. Which was 
cringy in other types of ways yeah. for, like, interpersonal conflict with women and, like, critical race theory, but... So there was, um, so they used terms like mentally unstable, emotionally unstable. I'm right. sure somebody said crazy at some point. Yeah. So there's that, and I think that has become such a part of our vernacular that we mm-hmm. kind of take it for granted about what that actually means. Yeah. And I think the, I think we have become more accepting of mental illness in everyday life, but I think kind of a consequence is that is that it's become too familiarized and I think sometimes when we use these words it kind of dilutes what it actually means yeah I think just this was like the clearest example to me in the episode of um even we're not talking it we're I guess we're talking about invisible disabilities in this way perhaps or we're assessing um assessing it in that way but this conflict just suggests to me that you know Nicole is an incomplete partner. She's not an appropriate partner if she's having some type of depression or anxiety for Colton. And this is treated, like you said, as an insult. And it's become such a part of our, like, just general vernacular, but also reality television vernacular, that if you're acting in a certain way, you're unstable, you're crazy, you're not um, appropriate and fit for the show, whether the show is a reality television dating show or a show of, you know, like, Top Chef. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, just jumping ahead, I just want to say on your note, speaking of Nicole, she has a brother who, what was, is he, is, is he currently institutionalized or I believe he lives at home? He, I think from, from the package, it seemed like he lived at home. Okay. I'm not sure if she lives with the, with him and her family. You know, what's interesting is that I recall, you know, she was talking about what a big part of he is to her life and she basically implied that like this is the package like if you right. if you um, want to pick me my brother comes with me you right. know I mean? or like my brother will be a part of um, part of our lives you know I'm committed to taking care of him mm-hmm. which is like not even that I'm glad she said it, but, like, that's, like, kind of part of that heroicism that they, Mm -hmm. like, isn't she such a martyr that she has? This beautiful girl has taken the time and, you know, is he holding her back? And, but on the other hand, like, I think that is really hard. Like, if you are somebody who um, is a caretaker for somebody with a disability, I think that affects your life too and maybe I can imagine how hard it is when you're trying to meet people and those people have kind of preconceptions or judge you or exclude you um you know that's part of it too and those that are caretakers for people with disabilities also face troubles and discrimination at work and it's not valued and if you need to take off work or you need to have special accommodations because you need to take care of this person I think that's also not very understood so I just that kind of kind of like made me think on that track but well (sighs) that goes to like I don't know like what you're saying about like accommodation and just like the way like workplaces or entertainment is framed Mm -hmm. because The Bachelor there's no sort of obvious like visible representation of I mean, I haven't watched it from its, like, very, very beginning, but I don't think I've ever watched a season where um, there's been, like, a centralization of, like, a contestant with, um, with like, a type of physical disability, for example. Okay. And the, the show itself certainly doesn't seem to me as, like, a viewer to 
to be accessible in any way. And that goes with, like, the construction of dates and just, like, the travel, which I think that you were, um, you know, talking about a little bit about, like, the physical feats that are um, necessary to compete on the show. Yeah. Right now, our listeners are screaming because there was a <gasps> contestant. Oh, I'm a baby. So. Uh, a couple years ago, and her name's Sarah Heron. Okay. Um, and she was born without a hand. So, so she was born without. Um, so her arm stops at her elbow, and she, that that was a something she was born with. And she definitely talked about it on the show mm-hmm. and how it affected her and. It seemed that the producers wanted it to be an issue with her. And, of course, like, she talked about, yes, it was hard growing up. I am different. But I think she really kind of embodied that social model where she kind of... It's not that she didn't want to talk about it. It just it kind of wasn't an issue for her on the show, at least. Yeah. But they did these real... Like, there was this one thing where they did a roller derby date. Mm-hmm. You can't... Like, that is not fair to her. Yeah. You know what I mean? She... Of all the things to do that for her, and she she was like, I'm going to do it because I don't want to be left out. And she actually did fall down and get hurt. What season was it? Was it oh, my gosh. I don't remember. Okay. I should have looked it up. It might have been Chris Soule's season. I like don't even Yeah, that's a lot. That's, that's, that's before you were born. <laughs> yeah, I'm two years old. Yes. Um, yeah. So there was. Okay, well, well that's interesting. But that, but that is very rare. Right, and right. the other thing is, mm-hmm. is that, and this, and I actually think she is actually, I, I still follow her on Instagram. Cool, cool. I think she's great, and she was on um, Bachelor in Paradise, where she was kind of a, one of the, like, grounding people on the show, um, that she was still a conventionally attractive white blonde woman. You know, so... It was presented as, look at this beautiful girl who struggled because of this disability, and, mm-hmm. and don't worry, she's still beautiful, right? according to standards. Yeah. But going back to what you were saying, so yeah. what are we talking, so this was a date where they had to go into the woods, which is a whole other issue, because this is they're, like they're in Thailand Exoticism. Right this ah. is just, yeah, this is, which we're going to talk about a lot. Next. Not week. that we can't talk about it, but, so they're going into the woods yeah. to do and this is one of those dates I think that their original date fell through mm. and the producers are like oh crap what can we do so they went in the jungle they went savage they ate bugs um, it was and then of course like the three tiny white girls were like oh my god I'm just gonna go back to the resort and get a hamburger and bring yeah. back so I wanted to like throw my television yeah. on the floor so just thinking about what it means um, how the bachelor sets up what heterosexual dates is it's these excursions it's doing things it's traveling and kind of this assumed abilities um i think about people with a mental uh i'm sorry a chronic illness mm-hmm. now for me um there's something and again i'm not claiming this i'm not trying to put place myself as part of this group but like for me I actually have to get sleep like I will get very ill if I don't have a regular sleep cycle and I even think about that on The Bachelor and assuming like the way that they film the rose ceremonies all night you know what I mean to create that so people with a chronic illness that may show up in ways like that like people that can't stand for that long of the time and how this excludes kind of excludes that because it doesn't fit to their narrative that just, um, I don't know, like, got me thinking about, like, absence and, like, representation. I mm-hmm. think 
like I watch America's Next Top Model a lot, and yeah. I think that that is one of the only reality television shows that um, centralized or grappled with those questions of ability and and, and disability in some ways. And that's interesting. It's yeah, a show about models and, and right bodies. Yeah, I'm thinking. I forget her name. She um, was suffering from um, a visual impairment, and she was oh, that's slow, the early, early, early. One. It was very I, early. I, that's when I watched. Yeah, it. she was. You know, like. Like, she was going to be blind, and so she had to walk the catwalk, like, at night, like, in the dark. Yeah. And, of course, she has a visual impairment, so it's difficult for her to see in dim light. And that is some type of representation, but still within this narrative of um, of overcoming, of being the hero. Yeah. That, you know, she's just so amazing that she was able to overcome her visual impairment and still look fierce. And for, for The Bachelor, which is a show about like a sexually like relationship or a romantic relationship it seems like the entertainment industry is, is just not able to grapple with like differently abled sexualities in any way that we can conceptualize of differently abled peoples in, in the workplace for example the modeling world yeah. but there is no incentive or there's no um yeah there's just like there's no representation at all of like what that would look like yeah, it's and it also builds into the narrative how it's all connected to like this compulsive heterosexuality because that says that you also need to, you know, if you think about children and having children and about is your body able to produce children? Can you raise children without assistance? And I would imagine that women with a with a with a perhaps uh, visible disability having children, I'm sure people are assholes to them and say things like, "Are you sure?" Like. That's dangerous. You shouldn't raise a child, which is just heartbreaking. Yeah. Okay. Well, can we do want to, Let's talk. Let's go back to Onyeka. The yeah, and the Nicole, combo. Because I am livid for <laughs> about many what, what part? <laughs> okay. Calling people emotionally unstable and mentally unstable not great. I don't right. like that they were calling each other that. I think that it dismisses somebody's feelings and the way people act. I think that, um, in general, women are typically ones to call each other that. Again, I don't have I don't have the uh, the data on the that. <laughs> yes, but I think on rea- in, in kind of the framework that we're working in. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what annoyed me, and this may not or may not be involved with this week's topic. But I have to say, when Colton came over and saw them fighting. Um, he got very annoyed, and he got up and left. He did not try to figure out what the issue was, and he was very annoyed because he said there was drama going on. Now, this is a pattern, and you've heard me give my whole speech before, that women are punished for showing emotion, and that he w- doesn't want that. What he thinks is good for him is a woman who is always per- you know, performing Domesticity. Performing um, normalcy. Okay, there we go. I just tied it back. So the normalcy is mm-hmm. not getting mad, not getting emotional, only if it's being vulnerable and telling him that. Telling him that, and we see that a lot with Tasha, who he really likes, and he always comments on. She's always smiling. She has a calming effect. She's so sweet, and like poor Tasha. I see it behind her eyes. She's like, but I want to scream, but you've set me up where now I'm performing in this way for you. And that you have made me do this labor of 
performing everything's okay everything's great I love you and it's just again um, I mean this is now my therapy session as an emotional person to be dismissed based on emotions is just it's just a way it's a control method it is quite frankly misogynist and these women were having a real interpersonal conflict find out what's wrong they are humans they are being bothered it is not drama it is i mean now we're in a reality show so of course they love it but the fact that colton was just so annoyed and confused and he sent them home well and because of it yeah like the i don't know like the like the racial politics of this as well like two women of color well you know hannah and kaylin were both causing a lot of drama with each other you know i think more so than like actively involving him like in the either, drama yeah, you yeah. know and like they yes they're having a loud conversation but they weren't I, I don't know you know they weren't dragging him over there he came over there of his own volition yeah. and so there's a casting of yeah oh well this is resolvable Kaylin and Hannah can stay that's fine but I think that there is a racial aspect that yeah. you know it's dismissive he doesn't want to get involved and that these are I think, I don't know. I think it's motivated by, yeah, internalized, like, internalized racism, certainly. And then also, um, yeah, I'm losing my train of thought. No, that's okay. (laughs) But no, I think you're, I think you're right. And I think this does get to this question of, like, the getting in my head thing. I don't think I've ever said that in my entire life. Like, is that, like, literally a fake phrase? What, what? When, like, they're like, oh, my God, I'm just getting in my head. I'm like, oh, who says that? It's, it is I have heard it in far as acting and improv and also like in public speaking so getting in your head means you start thinking about it too much yeah but like I've never like I've never like walked up to any romantic partner or friend and been like I'm just getting in my head right now um I just don't get the phrase so I mean it's kind of like self-doubting and it's self-dismissing I know so, it just seems so fake that they say it all the time yeah getting in your head means I'm actually thinking I'm thinking for myself I should yeah. just not think and act the just, way I'm supposed just to just feel it so yeah. getting in your head means you're actually having your own thoughts I mean it can be a negative thing if I don't know. I mean, it could be a negative thing if you are sort of self-sabotaging, like if you have to perform. I've heard it in far, as far as like actual performance, like theatrical perform, performance. That's speaking, fine. I'm okay with teaching, that. Teaching, but I've never said it to somebody. To like a person. Yeah. IRL. Yeah. I mean, I've said like, maybe I'm overreacting, which is <laughs> which is a self-sabotage as yeah. well. And, and, and to be clear, like I think overreact, I think... I think there are levels of acceptable emotion and that if you go outside those acceptable levels of emotion, like that also needs to be confronted. Like if you were very upset and it's, you're struggling to get through the day about a lot of things like that's, I have sympathy for that, but we can't just all say every emotion all the time. But then, true, you know what, then I talk myself out of that because it's like, who gets to show emotion? Yeah. Who gets to show emotion and then is labeled an angry black woman. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why there's a lot of, the emotional oh if I'm a woman and show emotion like I'm not trustable so there's a lot like this emotional stuff is really it it really frustrates me Um, so I think I think they were just it was just these crazy bitches they're fighting they're drama there's so much drama like it's so dismissive when somebody says I'm not into all that drama it's dismissive and it's anybody and being into drama means you're being petty but I call it 
having actual feelings for people and having actual emotions that come out. Yeah. All right. I think, I mean, I don't know. Do you have any other insights then into like applying disability <laughs> Nope, study? we solved it all. That's it. Well, we're done. So. I think um, I am excited. I'm reading, a, I want to read a book, um, hopefully for a course, that is the intersection of queerness and disability, which is really interesting to me. Yeah. I, uh, oh, um, yeah. My niece um, is, has, um, and is very into books about a character with a disability in a way that I actually think is sort of this new like subgenre that came out. But the some of the books she was explaining to me, I think that it can have an effect where she is interested in understanding and it gives a different perspective that we know are also doing research on representation of disability in young adult novels as well. Yeah, I think that coming back to this question of um of, if not crypt theory, but like the intersections between like queer theory and disability studies and how these converge to tell us about um, normative heterosexualities, I think are, are really fruitful. Um, but then, yeah, this question of the politics of representation, I think is is really critical that there's this like critical theory need for a more, I don't know, a sharpened critique. And yeah. then I think there's also just generally speaking about like mass culture and representation, I think that there's a need for more positive depictions and engagement with characters and then also like in reality television or just general television of, of different abilities and of different types of bodies. So yeah. One thing I want to say is um, just something interesting that I learned is that a lot of the made-for-TV commercials with sort of gadgets that people think, why would you need that? Yeah. Things for opening milk, things for putting on your shoes easier things for opening your door and you just wonder like what how lazy do you have to be actually those um those products are actually very beneficial to people with differing abilities so it kind of helps them do the everyday tasks things like a banana slicer you think like why can't you just slice a banana right. but that actually helps somebody um, who can't there was this big controversy about pre sliced oranges that were oh, being I sold and Mm -hmm. And it actually, somebody mentioned, like, slight, like slicing an orange or peeling an orange, and it can be very difficult. So yeah. it's kind of this, this um, things that we don't think about. Now, I don't know if Whole Foods is on the forefront of, you know. The social model. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, things like that, that was just really interested and really made me think about it and really challenge kind of the assumptions that I had for that. So that's just, it's just interesting. And then I'll post a link to... Um, something that talks more about that, which I thought was interesting. One more thing um, that just like occurred to me that I forgot to say, um, but I think is very interesting about disability studies is that it um, it contains like a capitalistic critique of bodies have to be abled in a certain way in order to produce. And yeah. if, if we're not abled in a way that we can work and we can labor in the way that is useful to the market economy, then that body is bad and that is... Um, that's disabled, that's not a functional body. So I think that disability studies really makes us consider like community relationships and like ethics of care and rethink, um, yeah, I don't know, capitalism and like what it means to be an individual like in society. So I think that that's, that's part of it too, that we're rethinking about um, like what is productive and what is labor and like what does functionality mean and how do we 
place different values on different types of bodies. So that was my yeah. last like flash of brilliance. And that's why I people so people that receive assistance from the government people think that they're just being lazy um, when in fact when you can't produce the labor that society wants you to. You know, you should. You should. I mean, we obviously we know we're on the side of that, but it's an interesting yeah. debate about that as well. Yeah. Um, are there any other points in the episode that are aside from theory that you feel like should like you um, have feelings about? You want to talk about <laughs> Colton's close-up eating on yeah. Hannah's date? How? I mean, I just thought that was really gross. Um, I don't know, like, did you, like, because Hannah, whatever her initial is, was like, I've never been kissed, which is fine, but... Are you talking about Heather? Whatever her name is. Yeah, They're Heather. All, they all look yeah. the same. They're all, like, little clones. Yeah, but, um, Heather. Yeah, like, that, the close-up shots were just so gross, and then their, it was, their fireworks actually happened when they kissed, like, I wanted to... I have a hot take. Yeah. I actually thought that was endearing because it was her first kiss and it is incredibly awkward mm-hmm. when you're like, how do I do this? Are we going to kiss now? Are we not going to kiss now? But they're old enough that he should have just been like, can I kiss you? Yeah. Or she could be like, "What? are you going to kiss me or can I kiss you? Like, yeah. She seemed very yeah. infantilized. Yeah. Which made me feel uncomfortable. And when they kissed, I was just like, yeah, I was a little, I, I was a little bit excited. Like yeah. it happened. Also, I just want her to get it over with, like, because I don't, it's not that I'm judging her, but first kisses are, like, you have to get good at it. So the quicker you do it, like, you will get better, you will be more comfortable with, like, being explicit about, like, you know, and that's good. And I think that people, I personally think it's hot when somebody asks to kiss you. Consent is sexy and mandatory. Yes. Um, And also, Kerpa, her chin, um... She, do you know why she... She fell on some rocks. Well, she was taking a selfie. Oh, that's She was taking a selfie on the rocks, and, like, a wave hit her, and she fell down and hit her chin. It's so, a fun story, though. Yeah. So, um, that's what happened to her chin, because I know I was watching, and also, like, they gave zero screen time to Kerpa, and then, like, next week, it's, like, she has a one-on-one, so... Who is Kerpa? That's that's my... She's dental hygienist. Yeah. She's very nice, actually. Um, I just realized Cassie is still there. Like, what... <sighs> Cassie. Maybe she was away taking her comps. I don't know. I don't Think that, writing her thesis. Did she email us? Because like she can't she's she. that busy. Like IDK. Um, but I'm excited to talk about like next week's episode. I'm really excited to talk about postcolonial theory. I know gonna, you like, are. Um, I'm gonna like dig up um the grave of Edward Said. <laughs> like I'm so excited. I love him. So. Um, baby Becca had her baby. Oh yeah, its name is Ruthie. Rook. It is so yeah. cute. It is very cute. She's living her best life. Her pictures were really cute. That yeah. she had. I love, I love, I love her. I, I love love. She's good. I, I love her energy. I love her sass. Um, yeah. So she's, congratulations to her. What, yeah. I don't know the astrological sign of her child off the top of my head. You'll I, do a chart reading it's later. It's an Aquarius, I'm pretty yeah. sure. Which yeah. is interesting, which um, jives with, she's also an Aquarius. So. Yeah. Um, we don't have any questions from listeners this week. Yeah. But if you want to write us. It's bachelorcriticaltheory at gmail.com. Our official site is can I steal you for a sec.tumblr.com where I will post the links to um, the articles and some other information. 
And we're now on iTunes and Spotify. Yay. You know what to do. Rate five stars so Casper Mattress will sponsor us. Subscribe. Um, Tell your friends. I'm pretty sure. Tell your enemies. We have, um, we already have a single five star rating, so that means we're pretty good. We're like number one. Like we have a perfect score. Yeah. Thanks to whoever did that. We really appreciate it. Yeah. I think it was just one of our fans, I guess. (laughs) So, um, I guess we'll talk next week. Yeah. All right. Bye. Bye.